0: This is the Pilot Photog Podcast. Let's listen to the interview with Future War Series author FX Holden. Hi, everyone. Today, my guest is author Tim Slee, who writes under the pen name FX Holden and writes some excellent military thrillers that I've actually been reading and highly recommend. How are you, Tim? Yeah, good, thank you. So yeah, the Future War series, uh, I'm actually in the third book. It starts with Kobani, then Golan, then the Bering Strait. That's right. You've got some excellent, excellent um, character development, uh, some vivid portrayals of fifth generation fighter craft, such as the uh, F-35 and, of course, the Su-57. Where do you get your sources to support these technical details that you elaborate on and expand so well? I don't have any
1: um, secret sources. That's the first thing to say up front. So there are no um, nobody spilling manufacturer details to me. It's all open source information. The research I do is um, is what I prefer. Actually, is first hand accounts um, from pilots who have flown uh, the machines that um, that I'm writing about. And uh, so I'll go all over the place uh, to try and get this uh, detail. Just as an example, there was a, a Norwegian pilot um, recently who's, um Into fighter school in the U.S., he was uh, one of the people who qualified um, the F-35 for um, for the Norwegian Air Force, and uh, he had a firsthand account um, of his uh, experiences with the F-35 in um, various training scenarios that he'd been involved in. It was in Norwegian, um, but I live in Denmark, so I can understand Norwegian. And I got in touch with him over the um, the internet and just fleshed out a few more details of his experience. Nothing at all that you can't find in open source information. Um, but, uh, but just adding to the flavor of what he was uh, saying in an article that he published um, openly on, uh, on, in the Norwegian
0: press. Excellent. As I said, you, you portray these, these very vivid encounters, very uh, realistic, I think, encounters. If you had to explain your book series to someone who didn't know about it or hadn't heard of it, what would you say that the Future of War series is about?
1: The Future War series started as an idea I had or always wanted to write about, which was um, what if you took the, um, the prototypes, the weapons that exist uh, on the drawing board today and projected them into scenarios 10 years into the future uh, and explored how they might be used and how they might influence the way wars um, are fought. And uh, there are some really, really interesting lessons to be had when you play that mind experiment because what we're more and more doing is taking the human out of the loop uh, in warfare. And, uh, and when we do that, we depersonalize warfare. Um, and that can have big consequences in terms of strategy. And so those are the types of things um, that I try and explore is if we have a, a future with a lot more autonomous weapons, if we have a future with um, weapons and AI that can do a lot of the decision-making for themselves, If you have politicians um, who might be more willing to, I don't know, engage in war or, or, or engage in conflict in a scenario where they weren't losing human lives by doing it, will they do that? And if they do, what would that look like?
0: Yeah, that does present a very interesting dilemma almost. There is no danger of a human casualty on the offensive side. You do um, spend a lot of time, as you mentioned, you know, talking about drone technology and how fighters can be used to control drones and deploy drones as forward reconnaissance and and actually offensive platforms. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how those tactics, uh, as you mentioned, evolve and kind of change the role of air combat?
1: I mean, one of the big challenges that um, that we will have in the future when you see stealth fighters going up against stealth fighters um, is uh, how are they going to engage each other when they can't see each other? Unless, you know, you're lucky to get a hit off a ground radar, then um, then it's going to be very difficult for um, these two air forces to, or two air platforms to match up against each other until they get within uh, radar range where they can pick each other up. So how are they going to detect each other um, and fight each other when their strength actually lies in being able to attack? each other at a, a huge distance. The, um, the loyal wingman concept that Boeing is working on, and there's also one by Kratos, involves uh, putting good um, avionics and, and great sensors in low-cost drone platforms so that you can send them out, um, use them as sacrificial lambs to, to try and detect um, other aircraft or other targets on the ground. And then if they get knocked down, it doesn't matter because behind them um, is the stealth fighter that's controlling them or the ground uh, pilot who's controlling them and sending data to the stealth fighter. And in that way, um, they're lifting that veil of, um, of stealth from their opponents before the pilot controlling them is even seen.
0: Yeah, and that raises a, an, another interesting question. I think the F-35, just as, a, as an example, has gotten a lot of flack and a lot of negative press for number one, how expensive it's been, how long it's taken to develop. Uh, and a lot of um, aviation enthusiasts, let's say, do not think it's a good dogfighter. It's not as maneuverable as maybe an F-15 or an F-16 or, or an F-22. Uh, and and many feel that it's therefore not an effective fighter. Can you talk about um, how being a drone controller makes the F-35 that much more effective? And it doesn't necessarily need to be the most maneuverable airplane to be successful. Yeah,
1: although I'd like to come back to to that particular... um point a little bit later but in but up front i mean if you if you have um an f-35 or an raf tempest or an su-57 russian aircraft um performing the role of an an airborne warning controller almost or an airborne control aircraft where they have two or three um wingmen uh with uh, good radar maybe even armed slaved to their aircraft then they're more like a um a, a platoon in the sky than they are a single aircraft, and they can uh, send those uh, drones out to um, explore contacts. They can send them out to prosecute targets on the ground or in the air. And the um, the pilot in that F thirty five or Su fifty seven is actually more like a quarterback than they are a, a single pilot. It's a, a very big force magnifier for them. So, again, as I said before, um, the idea that that they would never actually um, come within uh, um, basic fighter manoeuvre range so that they would be dogfighting with anybody, um, is an attractive one. One of the things about the F-35, and, and there are a lot of detractors, and I have no special insights, but uh, again, when I am writing, I rely on um, secondary source information from people who have actually flown the aircraft. And of course, there's the limit to what they can say. But um, for example, I was recently reading a um, research by a conservative think tank now of course they have their own agenda and you always have to think about the motivations of the source that you're um, that you're reading but this conservative think tank had interviewed 31 different pilots who have flown the F35 and they did a summary of it and um you'll see this reflected in the books when I'm describing dogfights that the F35 is in but also um uh, the F-35's ability to avoid missiles when it's, um, when it's targeted itself. They speak very much about the ability of the F-35 to use rudder-assisted turns. And uh, so, yes, it can't yank and bank like an F-16, but uh, it does have ability to manoeuvre that, uh, that an F-16 doesn't. And the Norwegian pilot, for example, that I recently had contact with, was saying that uh, when he went up against an F sixteen, he also went up against uh, Eurofighters. Um, he was able to stay on their six, to stay behind them, uh, using this ability of the F thirty five in uh, in a rudder assisted turn. It can very much, it can turn very flat and uh, and stay um, in uh, in control. The other thing that um, that he said was that it has an angle of attack advantage um, that he can't, that he's never seen in any other aircraft he's flown. Um, and that means that he can keep his nose pointed at the enemy um, in, uh, in situations where he wouldn't be able to do that in an F-16 or a Eurofighter.
0: That's interesting. I'd never heard that about the rudder assisted turns and, and basically the high alpha maneuvers, right? I mean, it's yeah. it sounds like it's optimized for that. Very interesting. Just quickly off topic, I do videos about the F-35 and you see all these comments about it's a terrible airplane and we need more you know, F-15s and F-16s. And those aircraft absolutely have a use. But it's very telling to me that you see more and more nations adopting or choosing the F-35. I think the most recent one is Switzerland, who has uh, at least signed an agreement or, or uh, a deal, it looks like, to procure F-35s as their next fighter. So they know something that we don't, right?
1: <laughs> well, I guess they're speaking to the, these pilots. But the other thing, I mean, Switzerland is a good case. The other thing you hear about the F-35 is that the lifetime um, maintenance costs are uh, prohibitive and that the purchase cost is prohibitive and so on. Switzerland, the deciding factor in it choosing the F-35 in that deal was its um, its cost advantage. And uh, I don't think the Swiss are, are the kind to throw money around.
0: No, I, and I think uh, the more F-35s are produced, the, the lower the unit cost becomes over time. I think now they're down to $78 million, the last I looked, right, a copy. and I. Th- the Eurofighter, I think it's 120 million or 115 million, somewhere around there.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, how many experts there are on the F thirty uh, five amongst the aviation community, and 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 uh, it's not to say anyone is is more correct or less correct than the other. I wouldn't know, but um, but uh, if you think back to aircraft in history, um, you look at uh, something like the MiG twenty one when that came out. Um, the uh, the US got a hold of a and MiG twenty one that was uh, sent to them by a defector or, or stolen for them by a defector. When they evaluated it against the F four the F one hundred five, they um, they wrote it off as a um, as an inferior aircraft. And actually, in the early days of the Vietnam War, the um, the MiG twenty one shot down a lot more F fours and F one hundred fives until yep. they learned how to fight against it. The same thing happened with the Spitfire. Actually, if you go back to World War II, the Germans um, got a hold of a Spitfire and did an analysis of it, and they decided that um, that uh, it was a piece of garbage because um, the engine cut out when it went into a positive G um, uh, bunt. And uh, what kind of fighter aircraft um, could fight um, if the engine kept cutting out? The thing is, and this is this will be the case for the F thirty five. Pilots learn to fly the aircraft, and they become able to overcome the disadvantages and take uh, advantage of the of the positives with the um, the way the aircraft flies. The Spitfire ended up being one of the best fighters in World War II because the pilot didn't ever put it into a, uh, a nose-down positive G um, dive. Um, they would roll it on its back and then pull their stick back and they would dive that way. They never got into the situation where their engine was cutting out. The same with the F-35. This Norwegian pilot um, was saying that he looks forward to learning to fly it better. And he learns every day, every time he goes up, um, he says he's flying it better. And I think that's the case.
0: Yeah, we're definitely in a generational shift because you have a lot of older pilots or, or generals or commanders that grew up or flew or learned how to fly fourth generation fighters. So their tactics are suited to that, those platforms. But now with this whole entire new generation, like, as you said, pilots have to learn how to fly it better and also update or adapt new tactics. You actually do discuss this in in one of your books, I believe uh, the, the Russian Su-57 pilot who is dealing with his commanding officers sending in the Su-57s as if they were as if they were fourth generation fighters and he's trying to adopt fifth generation tactics. So can you talk a little bit about that as it pertains to your book series?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, one of the characters in the book is a, is a young pilot. I, I gave them the name Felon Babies and, and uh, it was because I was talking to a colleague What I do when I do my write my books is that I put together a um uh, a beta reading team. This is not unusual, but a a team of um, experts, preferably um, uh, people with various backgrounds, whether it's um, military or non-military, but with um, specialization in electronics or radar, or um, people who have been pilots, people who worked in the Marines, uh, served in the Marines, people who've served in the Navy. And uh, one of these guys was saying that um, that. uh, when he was trained on the um, uh, F-16, they um, put together a group of pilots who had qualified, obviously, as, um, as fighter pilots, jet pilots, but had never flown the F-16 before, um, hadn't flown any other uh, comparable fighter because they wanted them to learn how to fly the F-16 as the F-16, not to transfer any bad habits they might have had um, from um, previous training or previous aircraft which I thought was an interesting idea. So the idea uh, in the book is that uh, this pilot uh, comes up as a um, Su-57 felon baby who's only ever been uh, uh, trained or only ever flown on um, the Su-57. So he doesn't have the, the bad habits of the past. And the way he wants to, and I put myself in his shoes, the way he wants to fly the aircraft is not um, in formation with uh, other uh, aircraft providing uh, support for each other. But and in, in that quarterback role that I was discussing earlier, um, where because he is never alone in the sky, he can actually roam far and wide. And if you have a, a four-plane unit, you can roam far and wide. You can cover a 100-mile front instead of a 20 or 30-mile front um, because your four aircraft, even though they're not in contact with or not in visual contact with each other, um, are in are always in contact with each other um, through the data that they're sending to each other and the radio communication. So, yeah, the idea explored in the book is um, is uh, if you throw away the, the old strategies and uh, adopt new strategies where you're actually playing to the advantages of these units, which are A, platforms which are just as powerful because of the data that they can assimilate as they are because of the weapons they can carry it'll be a different war.
0: Yeah, most definitely. I mean, the modern fighters today are more akin to supercomputers, right, than they are to just, you know, flying platforms. And information and sensor data is a huge, huge component of fifth-generation aircraft with sensor fusion. The philosophy behind the F-35, I feel, is a little bit different than behind the Su-57. Can you discuss a little bit about what you see as the doctrine differences between the U.S. and NATO aircraft versus maybe Russian uh, aircraft? When it comes to the fifth generation platforms, well, the main one is that the
1: Russian Su-57. As far as I can see, um, we don't know anything about how um, stealthy it really is. Um, But uh, uh, the main difference, as far as I can see, is that they haven't dropped the Russian emphasis on uh, on their aircraft being super manoeuvrable with um, thrust vectoring engines and and the control surfaces that mean that they can um, perform absolutely amazing maneuvers. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but have you seen the uh, SU-57 video that was done at the MAX-19 air show about uh, two years ago?
0: No, no, I haven't. I've seen some of the SU-27 footage, which that can do amazing maneuvers, but I'll definitely check out the the 57 at MAX-19. Yeah,
1: the SU-57 that flown by one of the um, SU-57 pilots um, test pilots at max nineteen there's a video there from the um, video in Russia at the max nineteen. The maneuvers that plane can can pull off are absolutely insane everything that the su twenty seven could do and better and um, and this one point there where it actually looks like it 's flying backwards it 's an optical illusion, but uh, it is insane and um, that's the the uh, the main difference that that russia hasn 't given that up and and it was interesting um, I was reading. So, what what is the advantage of of super maneuverable aircraft if you're engaging each other at beyond visual range? You're not in a dogfight, so why do you need a super maneuverable aircraft? That's a a question a lot of people ask. Because what good is it when you're firing missiles at each other from 50 miles away? There was actually a um, a Chinese uh, engineer, flight uh, avionics engineer from the Shenyang Shenyang Corporation, and of course, again, you need to look at your source of your information. That is not. Necessarily, particularly disposed towards, uh, well disposed towards U.S. aircraft, and so he was talking up the Su fifty-seven. But what he said was um, that this super maneuverability is going to be a huge advantage in evading um, enemy missiles. So yes, you're not um, dogfighting with uh, with uh, an an F thirty-five or even a a, um, uh, any other American aircraft. You're not dogfighting them. within visual range, but you still have to be able to dodge the missiles they're firing at you. And um, being um, super maneuverable is not going to be a disadvantage in, in that respect. The more maneuverable you are, greater the chances you're going to be able to dodge a missile.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's an excellent uh, point for the, you know, defensive countermeasures, which we think of you know flare chaff, electronic jamming, but maneuvers are most definitely a part of that. And I think that gets kind of overlooked by many people. One of the characters that you have in your book uh, books excuse me that i've i've really uh you know enjoyed reading is uh is Karen Bunny O'Hare i believe she's the australian f35 pilot uh can you talk a little bit about her maybe trajectory arc or her ins- the inspiration you had for for creating that character
1: yeah we have um a tradition in the australian air force of um... Of uh, female pilots, no different to any other air force in the world these days. But um, female fighter pilots, Um, our tradition only goes back probably ten years. Um, The Russians obviously goes back to the Second World War. I thought it'd be really interesting to um, to write a character um, as a as a key protagonist in these novels, who was a female fighter pilot. Incredibly inspiring stories from the um, the Russian female fighter pilots of the Second World War. And then uh, when you think about the type of um, struggle that it must be um, for any pilot to become a fighter pilot, let alone a female fighter pilot, I thought it would be good to explore. Um, the, uh, the character here is actually um, uh, one that starts the books as a, um, as a junior pilot in her first conflict. And it very quickly becomes apparent she's really not cut out for the Air Force. <laughs> Um, basic ability to follow orders. I had a, um, a, one of the beta readers on the team said, um, look, she wouldn't even have got to the stage where she was uh, deploying for combat. She would have been found out and thrown out before then, but that's not fun to write about. So um, she is found out um, during the first book. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, she doesn't come out of that first um, novel um, particularly well. But then that spirit that she has of constantly questioning, Authority constantly questioning accepted doctrine, constantly questioning technology, was one that I, I is very useful in these books because that's what I'm doing. So she's doing it for me, um, and uh, she never takes anything at face value. She doesn't take anyone at face value. Um, she has to prove the technology for herself, and she people around her have to prove themselves. To her, in order to be accepted. So that's the the, um, the premise behind that character.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful um, concept to explore, and and I think you've done it brilliantly with the character, and it's it's a very fun read. Um, I'm three books in, I believe, right now. There are five books that have been released. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, there are um, five, and the sixth one will be out this um, Christmas. The beta team has been put together, and we've got some uh, pilots, some navy. Officers, we've got uh, some U.S. Marines. We've got um, a German radar technician. We have a Ukrainian tank driver on our beta team for the next one.
0: Awesome! And will that be the last in the series, or is this going to be an ongoing series? When I run out of
1: ideas for future conflicts, I think um, uh, it'll be uh, it'll be the last in the series. This one, the next one is about a conflict in the South China Sea, and after that, it'll be um, Korea.
0: Yeah, those are both um, very charged areas right now. Um... I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of good reading to be had there. Yeah, I hope so.
1: The, um, the idea is that um, I'm not writing Third World War novels. So these are as based in reality as I can get them. Um, strategic scenarios that, uh, that people frequently comment are realistic. They're not overblown. It's not, um, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's um, usually explored through the eyes of several um, minor characters rather than major characters. Um, in a minor conflict, rather than a major conflict.
0: Yeah, and and again, they they make for they make for great reading. When it comes to having become a writer, what authors have inspired you?
1: This um this series actually was inspired by a particular author, no one would have heard of here. and uh, his name was Brian Callison. He was a British author, and the fantastic thing about uh, especially this one book that he wrote, which was called Dawn Attack, it's about the story of the British attack. A British commando raid on Norway in the, in the second world war um, up in the Lofoten islands. And uh, what he did was he wrote the story from multiple perspectives on both sides, the German and the British. And uh, that fascinated me. He wrote it he wrote about, um, I suppose, 20 years ago. Uh, this was a book my father had on his bookshelf and um, I loved it because it was just about ordinary soldiers, sailors, and airmen. And, um, on both sides of the conflict. And it didn't actually take sides. Um, so yes, um, obviously history and, uh, and, and your own moral codex are gonna tell you which side you wanna be on if it's the Germans and the Nazis versus the, uh, the British. But, but uh, when it's about the ordinary soldiers, sailors, and airmen who are, who are fighting in the conflict, um, it's less about the ideology and it's much more about the personality. Uh, of the of the individuals involved and and basically that none of them are evil. Um, there is no real good guy, no real bad guy. they are soldiers sailors and airmen who are just doing what their country has put them there to do and, and making their best trying to get out of it alive. Um, that was the author that was the inspiration for these books and so every one of these books takes a similar sort of starting point takes a starting point in the individuals involved in a conflict. Um, on both sides or even sometimes three sides um, of, of, the, uh, of the battle and looks at the world through their eyes without trying to draw too many um, uh, big moral bows.
0: So you could say it's, it's ordinary people caught up in extraordinary events or circumstances and how do they perform or what happens in those conditions, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. And they don't, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not Game of Thrones, but they don't all make it through which is uh, which is reality
0: yeah I think that's one of the things I've enjoyed most about reading these books is first of all they're all very plausible scenarios these these could happen in 10 years or maybe less in some cases but the way people respond the way people react there are no you know uh, superhuman characters or, or characters with what they call plot armor that nothing can happen to them you really feel a sense of of danger and and um, tension for these characters and and the outcome is not obvious and it's not clear and I think that makes for a, a very good story and a very good page turner
1: yeah and of course i've learned from all the the masters i i'm a fan of clancy i'm a fan of cussler i'm a fan of dale brown and the reason i mentioned that other author was because the structure of these books is very different to the ones that they write topics are the same they write much better than i ever will but the um, the uh, the structure is a little different
0: yeah I, I do like seeing the perspective from from both sides or not at the super high level like commander or you know general leadership it's the soldiers that are tasked with prosecuting these orders or these these missions that they have to do and and how they respond to it and so where can people find your books what's the best place to go to, to get copies of these um, what do you recommend? it's unfortunately it's
1: amazon because um if you're a if you're a person who, who believes that uh, amazon is an evil empire um i can i can't help you because i only publish on amazon um and uh, uh you can get paperback or um or ebook there the reason i only publish on amazon is because uh amazon unfortunately or unfortunately ha- is a um almost a monopoly on ebooks yes i know you can get them on apple books and and uh and there are other sources but they have more than 80% of the market and I put my energy into into that eighty percent.
0: Yeah, you have to get the the most exposure possible. I haven't tried to get a
1: traditional publisher. I have a traditional publisher for my contemporary fiction. I haven't tried to get a, a traditional publisher for for this series. It's not that I wouldn't entertain it, but um, but to be absolutely honest, um, if you're able to make a um a, a go of it as a Independent author on Amazon, the um the royalties are just so much better.
0: Interesting, I didn't know that. So it's it's more beneficial as an author to be on Amazon, then correct?
1: It's incredibly more beneficial as long as you can uh, navigate that uh, Amazon environment. If you have basic marketing skills and you're able to navigate the platform, um, it's so much better. That my royalties as a um, author with a publishing house are ten percent of sales. My royalties with um, Amazon are 70. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's an incredibly large difference. What advice can you give to people who are thinking about becoming writers or are interested in the craft of writing? I have just
1: uh, two words to say, and that's called, it's it's just write. Just start, just write, write as much as you can, write as often as you can. Don't panic about whether it's perfect. Um, Send it to as many people as you want, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister your friends who, who um, you're not afraid to lose. Send it out there, get as much advice as you can. Just keep writing. If it doesn't work, write something else. And that was basically my secret the whole way through, is that anytime I was writing, I would have two or three projects that I was working on. Um, if one people didn't like, I could go with the other. If they didn't like that, I would go with the other until eventually um, something hit the wall and stuck.
0: That is fantastic advice, and really, it is just a matter of sitting down and writing, and, and writing every day if possible. Correct?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do it. So a lot of people take, especially if you've got a day job, take some time out and uh, and lock yourself away for two weeks and see how much you can get done. But I'm a fan of the uh, Leonard Elmore Leonard um, school of uh, of writing. Elmore Leonard was a um, uh, a crime writer or an American crime fiction writer. Um, He wrote uh, at least one book a year, sometimes two books a year, even while he was working full time as an advertising um, executive. And the way he did it was that he wrote two hours a day. Wow. Every day. So he would get up at 5am and write till 7am, or he would come home at 6pm and write till 8pm. He wrote two hours every day. Within a half a year, he had a book, then he would edit it, throw away half of what he'd written. And that's what uh, he ended up um, uh, publishing. Again, it was uh, it, the principle is just right. You can't uh, you can't get published unless you do that, and um, and he was the perfect example of that. I think he wrote 111 books in his lifetime. Wow! If you like uh, crime fiction, crime noir, he has a hundred uh, or so titles. He also wrote westerns, but uh, his, a lot of his books have been turned into films.
0: Yeah, with that many titles, I can imagine that's just a prolific amount of writing. Yeah, insane. I'd like to circle back to your your beta team that you were mentioning earlier um, and just kind yeah. of discuss that process. So you mentioned earlier your beta team, and it's kind of a group of experts that help you produce or validate some of the technology that you're writing about. Can you talk a little bit about how you met or became friends with the people in the beta team and what that process is like?
1: Well, the first time I I was putting together a beta team was actually for the novel um, Bering Strait, which you which I think you said you just started reading. Bering Strait was was the first one I wrote, but it's the third one in the series in in terms of um, time frame. But um, with Bering Strait, I had an idea of what I wanted to write about, and I wanted to write about technology, military technology and its application in the future. I don't have um, a military background; I'm a have an intelligence background, so I can write. I can easily set myself in the strategy side of things, technology side of things. I needed help. Um, and I had no idea where to get that help. So what I did was there are various forums on the internet for people who are soldiers of fortune, mercenaries, contract security people. I thought to myself, okay, how am I going to attract some of them to help me? I can't, I'm not going to pay them. I can't pay them. So what I did was I went on there and I said, look, I'm going to give 20% of the, the um, proceeds of this book to charity. Um, I need people to give me advice on uh, aircraft technology, radar, um, naval technology, land warfare technology. Um, if you're interested in helping, like I said, um, you'll be helping with a project where people where, where money goes to charity. Um, I didn't think anybody would be interested straight away. I got ten people. Wow! And uh, and they were from all walks of life. There were Germans. There were Russians. There were um, uh, people from Australia. Two Brits. Uh, a female pilot from New Zealand who actually um, uh, is a pilot instructor. I got a Texas um, SWAT team instructor. Oh, wow. So in Bering Strait, there's a, a, um, a scene where Russian commandos attack a US, uh, a US base and try and, uh, and take it over. He actually wrote that scene, um, uh, not in practical terms, but in, uh, in general terms. He described to me exactly how that scenario would take place. And, uh, and if it was a, an aircraft, if it was an airbase takedown, then this is what would happen. And uh, that's basically why a lot of people think they're so authentic. They're authentic. If they are authentic, it's because the, um, the meat of it comes from these um, leader advisors.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I actually did read Bering Straight first and then realized Kobani was the first book in the timeline, went back and read Kovani and I'm reading Golan now. Right. As you've written more books, has that beta team grown? Has it stayed the same amount of members? Oh, it's different every
1: time. It's a, Yeah, it's different every time. The, the um, It's usually six months, sometimes even longer between a book. Um, and uh, so people come and go. There are a couple who've been there from the start. And they um extremely valued, but they're also, they're a little bit invested in the series, right? So they're not going to be as, as easy, as good at seeing when there are flaws. It's great to have a whole lot of new people on the group who are also bringing new ideas, but they're also looking at the series with new eyes and uh, they may not be so kind.
0: Yeah, and they, I guess they're more objective, right? They don't have a, a bias. towards. Yeah, the that's right. They are more right?
1: objective. They very quickly get invested. So it's funny how people I, we had to in, in the first group with Bering Straight, we had a Ukrainian and a Russian in the in the um, in the beta team. And we ended up having to say goodbye to the uh, to the Ukrainian colleague because um, he simply couldn't be unemotional about mm. uh, about. Things he uh, he was very emotional about anything to do with the Russian element of the book, and uh, and in the end he admitted himself look, this is good for my mental health, so I'm going to quit.
0: <laughs> Some of it is, in a way, it, it's hard to read because you know we all have our our. I guess, political motivations or affiliations or identities, let's say. And so, you know, you don't want to see, quote unquote, your side losing or anything like that. But uh, it makes for it makes for a good story. And it really makes you think about the direction that we're headed as far as our tactics or our strategies and, and everything else. It's I find it it's really good food for thought. Thanks for listening to the interview. If you're looking for a good series to read, I highly recommend FX Holden's Future War titles. I'll leave a link in the show notes.